Chapter 21 of Memories and Adventures This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A Fine Voice Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Chapter 21 The Years Between the Wars History of the War Sir Oliver Lodge Military Arguments Sir Nigel The Adelgi Case Crowborough The Oscar Slater Case When I returned from South Africa, I found that my wife had improved in health during her stay at Naples, and we were able to settle down once more at Hindhead, where what with work, cricket and hunting, I had some pleasant years. A few pressing tasks were awaiting me, however. Besides the barren contest at Edinburgh, I had done a history of the war, but the war still continued, and I had to modify it and keep it up to date in successive editions until in 1902 it took final shape. I called it the Great Boer War, not because I thought the war great in the scale of history, but to distinguish it from the smaller Boer War of 1881. It had the good fortune to please both friend and foe, for there was an article from one of the Boer leaders in Cornhill commending its impartial tone. It has been published now by Nelson in a cheap edition and shows every sign of being the permanent record of the campaign. No less than £27,000 was spent upon an official history, but I cannot find that there was anything in it which I had not already chronicled, save for those minute details of various forces which clog a narrative. I asked the chief official historian whether my book had been of use to him, and he very handsomely answered that it had been the spine round which he built. This history, which is a large-sized book, is not to be confused with the pamphlet The Cause and Conduct of the War in South Africa, which was a small concise defence of the British position. The inception and result of this I have already described. I have no doubt that it was to the latter that my knighthood and my appointment as Deputy Lieutenant of Surrey, both of which occurred in 1902, were due. I remember that on going down to Buckingham Palace to receive the accolade, I found that all who were waiting for various honours were herded into funny little pens. According to their style and degree, there to await their turn. It chanced that Professor Oliver Lodge, who was knighted on the same morning, was penned with me, and we plunged at once into psychic talk, which made me forget where I was, or what I was there for. Lodge was really more advanced and certain in his views than I was at that time, but I was quite sure about the truth of the phenomena, and only doubtful whether some alternative explanation might be found for a discarnate intelligence as the force at the back of them. This possibility I weighed for years before the evidence forced me to the spiritist conclusion. But when among the cloud of lies with which we are constantly girt, I read that Lodge and I were converted to our present views by the death of our respective sons, my mind goes back very clearly to that exchange of thought in 1902. At that time we had both studied the subject for many years. Among the many congratulations which I had on my knighthood, there were few which I valued more highly than that of my old comrade, H. A. Gwynne, who knew so much about South African affairs. He was good enough to say, I look upon your work, 
during this terrible South African business as quite equal to that of a successful general. This may well be the exaggeration of friendship, but it is at least pleasing to know that those who were in a position to judge did not look upon me as a mere busybody who butts in without due cause. There is one incident at this period which comes back to my memory and seems very whimsical. I had taken a course of muscular development with Mr Sandow, the strong man, and in that way had formed an acquaintance with him. In the winter of 1901, Mr Sandow had a laudable desire to do something for the British wounded, and with that idea he announced a competition at the Albert Hall. He was himself to show feats of strength, and then there was to be a muster of strong men who should exhibit their proportions and receive prizes. There were to be three prizes, a golden statue about two feet high, a silver replica and a bronze. Sandow asked Laws, the sculptor, and myself to be the two judges, he being referee. It proved to be a very big event. The Albert Hall was crowded. There were eighty competitors, each of whom had to stand on a pedestal, arrayed only in a leopard skin. Laws and I put them up ten at a time, chose one here and one there, and so gradually reduced the number until we only had six left. Then it became excessively difficult, for they were all perfectly developed athletes. Finally the matter was simplified by three extra prizes, and then we got down to the three winners, but had still to name their order, which was all important, since the value of the three prizes was so very different. The three men were all wonderful specimens, but one was a little clumsy, and another a little short, so we gave the valuable gold statue to the middle one, whose name was Murray and who came from Lancashire. The vast audience was very patient during our long judgment, and showed that it was in general agreement. After the meeting, Sandow had invited the prize-winners, the judges, and a chosen company to a late supper, which was very sumptuous, with champagne flowing freely. When we had finished, it was early in the morning. As I left the place of banquet, I saw in front of me the winning athlete going forth into the London night with the big golden statue under his arm. I had seen that he was a very simple countryman, unused to London ways, so I overtook him and asked him what his plans were. He confided to me that he had no money, but he had a return ticket to Bolton or Blackburn, and his idea was to walk the streets until a train started for the north. It seemed to me a monstrous thing to allow him to wander about with his treasure at the mercy of any murderous gang, so I suggested that he should come back with me to Morley's Hotel, where I was residing. We could not get a cab, and it seemed to me more grotesque than anything of Stephen's London imaginings that I should be wandering round at three in the morning in the company of a stranger who bore a great golden statue of a nude figure in his arms. When at last we reached the hotel, I told the night porter to get him a room, saying at the same time, Mind you are civil to him, for he has just been declared to be the strongest man in England. This went round the hotel, and I found that in the morning he held quite a reception, all the maids and waiters paying homage, while he lay in bed with his statue beside him. He asked my advice as to selling it, for it was of considerable value, and seemed a white elephant to a poor man. I told him he should open a gymnasium in his native town, and have the statue exhibited as an advertisement. This he did, and I believe he has been very successful. A post-African task was the building up of rifle clubs. 
for I was enormously impressed by the power of the rifle, as shown in the recent war. A soldier was no longer a specialised creature, but every brave man who could hold a rifle barrel straight was a dangerous man. I founded the Undershore Club, which was the father of many others, and which was inspected by Lord Roberts, Mr Seeley, and other great men. Within a year or two England was dotted with village clubs, though I fear that few of them still hold their own. I was so struck by the factors in modern warfare, and I had thought so much about them in Africa, that I wrote about them with some freedom, and possibly even with some bitterness, so that I speedily found myself involved in hot controversy with Colonel Lonsdale Hale, the Times expert, and also with Colonel Maud, a well-known military writer. Perhaps as a civilian I should have expressed my views in a more subdued way, but my feelings had been aroused by the conviction that the lives of our men, and even the honour of our country, had been jeopardised by the conservatism of the military, and that it would so happen again unless more modern views prevailed. I continued to advance my theories for the next ten years, and I have no doubt when I judged them by the experience of the Great War that in the main I was right. The points which I made were roughly as follows. That the rifle, or machine gun, which is a modified rifle, is the supreme arbiter in war, and that therefore everything must be sacrificed to concentrate upon that. That the only place for swords, lances, and all the frippery of the past was a museum. Bayonets also are very questionable. That cavalry could not divide their allegiance between rifle and sword, since entirely different ground and tactics are needed for each, the swordsman looking for level sward, the rifleman looking for cover, therefore all cavalry should at once become mounted rifles, that the very heaviest guns of our fortresses or battleships would be transported by road and used in the field in our next campaign, that field guns must take cover exactly as riflemen do, that the yeomanry, a very expensive force, should be turned into a cyclist organisation. In view of the fine work done by the yeomanry, especially in the eastern deserts, I should reconsider the last item, and the bayonet question is debatable, but all the rest will stand. I stress the fact also that the period of military training is placed too high, and that an excellent army could be rapidly vamped up if you had the right men. This also was proved by the war. I remember a debate which I attended as to the proper arms and use of cavalry. The cavalry were there in force, all manner of gallant fellows, moustached and debonair, inclined to glare at those who would disarm them. Sir Torbman Goldie was in the chair. Three of us, all civilians, upheld the unpopular view that they should lose all their glory and become sombre but deadly riflemen. It is curious now to record that the three men were Erskine Childers, Lionel Amory and myself. Childers was shot at dawn as a traitor to Ireland, as well as to Britain. Amory became First Lord of the Admiralty, and I write this memoir. I remember Amory's amusing comparison, when he twitted the cavalry with wishing to retain the arme blanche, simply because their continental antagonists would have it. If you fight a rhinoceros, he said, you don't want to tie a horn on your nose. It is an interesting commentary upon this discussion that on one morning during the war there were duels between two separate squadrons of British and German cavalry.
the first two squadrons, who were lancers, rode through each other's ranks twice, with loss on either side, and no conclusive result. In the second case, German lancers charged British hussars, who dismounted, used their carbines, and simply annihilated the small force which attacked them. When my immediate preoccupations after the war had been got rid of, I settled down to attempt some literary work upon a larger and more ambitious scale than the Sherlock Holmes or Brigadier Gerard stories, which had occupied so much of my time. The result was Sir Nigel, in which I reverted to the spacious days of the White Company and used some of the same characters. Sir Nigel represents, in my opinion, my high-water mark in literature, and though that mark may be on sand, still an author knows its comparative position to the others. It received no particular recognition from critics or public, which was, I admit, a disappointment to me. In England, versatility is looked upon with distrust. You may write ballad tunes, or you may write grand opera, but it cannot be admitted that the same man may be master of the whole musical range, and do either with equal success. In 1906, my wife passed away, after the long illness which she had borne, with such exemplary patience. Her end was painless and serene. The long fight had ended at last in defeat, but at least we had held the vital fort for thirteen years after every expert had said that it was untenable. For some time after these days of darkness, I was unable to settle to work, until the Adalgi case came suddenly to turn my energies into an entirely unexpected channel. It was in the year 1907 that this notorious case took up much of my time, but it was not wasted, as it ended, after much labour, in partially rectifying a very serious miscarriage of justice. The facts of the case were a little complex, and became more so as the matter proceeded. George Adalji was a young law student, son of the Reverend S. Adalji, the Parsee vicar of the parish of Great Worley, who had married an English lady. How the vicar came to be a Parsee, or how a Parsee came to be the vicar, I have no idea. Perhaps some Catholic-minded patron wished to demonstrate the universality of the Anglican Church. The experiment will not, I hope, be repeated, for though the vicar was an amiable and devoted man, the appearance of a coloured clergyman with a half-caste son in a rude, unrefined parish was bound to cause some regrettable situation. But no one could have foreseen how serious that situation would become, the family became the butt of certain malicious wags in the neighbourhood and were bombarded with anonymous letters, some of them of the most monstrous description. There was worse, however, to come. A horrible epidemic of horse-maiming had broken out, proceeding evidently from some blood-lusting lunatic of sadic propensities. These outrages continued for a long time and the local police were naturally much criticised for doing nothing. It would have been as well had they continued to do nothing, for they ended by arresting George Adalji for the crime, the main evidence being that there were signs that the writer of the anonymous letters knew something about the crimes, and that it was thought that young Adalji had written the anonymous letters, which had plagued his family so long. The evidence was incredibly weak, and yet the police, all pulling together and twisting all things to their end, managed to get a conviction at the Stafford Quarter Sessions in 1903. 
the prisoner was sentenced to seven years' penal servitude. There were some murmurs among discerning people at the time, and Mr. Voules, of truth, has an honourable record for having kept some sort of agitation going, but nothing practical was done until the unhappy youth had already served three years of his sentence. It was late in 1906 that I chanced to pick up an obscure paper called The Empire, and my eye caught an article which was a statement of his case, made by himself. As I read, the unmistakable accent of truth forced itself upon my attention, and I realised that I was in the presence of an appalling tragedy, and that I was called upon to do what I could to set it right. I got other papers on the case, studied the original trial, went up to Staffordshire and saw the family, went over the scene of the crimes, and finally wrote a series of articles on the case, which began in the Daily Telegraph of January the 12th, 1907. As I bargained that they should be non-copyright, they were largely transferred to other papers, sold for a penny at street curbs, and generally had a very wide circulation, so that England soon rang with the wrongs of George Adalgi. These wrongs would have been almost comic had they not had so tragic an upshot. If the whole land had been raked, I do not think that it would have been possible to find a man who was so unlikely, and indeed so incapable, of committing such actions. He was of irreproachable character. Nothing in his life had ever been urged against him. His old schoolmaster, with years of experience, testified to his mild and tractable disposition. He had served his time with a Birmingham solicitor, who gave him the highest references. He had never shown traits of cruelty. He was so devoted to his work that he had won the highest honours in the legal classes, and he had already, at the age of twenty-seven, written a book upon railway law. Finally, he was a total abstainer, and so blind that he was unable to recognise anyone at the distance of six yards. It was clear that the inherent improbability of such a man committing a long succession of bloody and brutal crimes was so great that it could only be met by the suggestion of insanity. There had never, however, been any indication even of eccentricity in George Adalgi. On the contrary, his statements of defence were measured and rational, and he had come through a series of experiences which might well have unhinged a weaker intellect. The original theory at the trial had been that Adalgi had committed the particular mutilations with which he was charged some time in the evening. This line of attack broke down completely, and he was able to advance a certain alibi. In the middle of the case, therefore, the police prosecution shifted its ground, and advanced the new theory that it was done in the early hours of the morning. George Adalgi, as it happened, slept in the same room as his father, the parish vicar. The latter is a light sleeper, and is accustomed, as many people are, to assure privacy by turning the key of his room. He swore that George never left the room during the night. This may not constitute an absolute alibi in the eye of the law, but it is difficult to imagine anything nearer to one unless a sentinel had been placed outside the door all night. It is so near an alibi that nothing but the most cogent considerations could shake it. But far from there being any such considerations, the case was such a thing of threads and patches that one cannot imagine how any sane jury could have accepted it, even though the defence was weakly conducted. 
So bad was this defence that in the whole trial no mention, so far as I could ascertain, was ever made of the fact that the man was practically blind, save in good light, while between his house and the place where the mutilation was committed lay the full breadth of the London and North Western Railway, an expanse of rails, wires and other obstacles with hedges to be forced on either side, so that I, a strong and active man, in broad daylight, found it a hard matter to pass. What aroused my indignation and gave me the driving force to carry the thing through was the utter helplessness of this forlorn little group of people, the coloured clergyman in his strange position, the brave blue-eyed grey-haired wife, the young daughter baited by brutal boors, and having the police, who should have been their natural protectors, adopting from the beginning a harsh tone towards them and accusing them beyond all sense and reason of being the cause of their own troubles and of persecuting and maligning themselves. Such an exhibition, sustained, I am sorry to say, by Lord Gladstone and all the forces of the Home Office, would have been incredible had I not actually examined the facts. The articles caused a storm of indignation through the country. Truth, Sir George Lewis and other forces, joined in the good work. A committee was formed by the government to examine and report. It consisted of Sir Arthur Wilson, the Honourable John Lloyd Wharton and Sir Albert de Rutzen. Their finding, which came to hand in June, was a compromise document. For though they were severe upon the condemnation of Adalgi and saw no evidence which associated him with the crime, they still clung to the theory that he had written the anonymous letters, that he had therefore been himself contributory to the miscarriage of justice, and that for this reason all compensation for his long period of suffering should be denied him. It was a wretched decision, and the Law Society at the prompting of Sir George Lewis showed what they thought of it by at once readmitting Adelgi to the role of solicitors with leave to practice, which they would never have done had they thought him capable of dishonourable conduct. But the result stands. To this day, this unfortunate man, whose humble family has paid many hundreds of pounds in expenses, has never been able to get one shilling of compensation for the wrong done. It is a blot upon the record of English justice, and even now it should be wiped out. It is to be remembered that the man was never tried for writing the letters, a charge which could not have been sustained, so that as the matter stands he has got no redress for three years of admitted false imprisonment on the score that he did something else for which he has never been tried. What a travesty of justice! The Daily Telegraph got up a subscription for him which ran to some three hundred pounds. The first use that he made of the money was to repay an old aunt who had advanced the funds for his defence. He came to my wedding reception, and there was no guest whom I was prouder to see. So far my work had been satisfactory. Where I caused myself great trouble was that in my local exploration at Worley I had come across what seemed to me a very direct clue as to both the writer, or rather writers, of the letters, and also of the identity of the mutilator, though the latter word may also have been in the plural. I became interested, the more so as the facts were very complex, and I had to do with people who were insane as well as criminal. I have several letters threatening my life in the same writing as those which assailed the Adalges, a fact which did not appear to shake in the least 
the home office conviction that George Adelji had written them all. Mentally, I began to class the home office officials as insane also. The sad fact is that officialdom in England stands solid together and that when you are forced to attack it, you need not expect justice, but rather that you are up against an unavowed trade union, the members of which are not going to act the blacklead to each other and which subordinates the public interest to a false idea of loyalty. What confronts you is a determination to admit nothing which inculpates another official, and as to the idea of punishing another official for offences which have caused misery to helpless victims, it never comes within their horizon. Even now, after the lapse of so many years, I can hardly think with patience of the handling of this case. The mistake that I made, so far as my own interests were concerned, was that having got on the track of the miscreant, I let the police and the Home Office know my results before they were absolutely completed. There was a strong prima facie case, but it needed the goodwill and cooperation of the authorities to ram it home. That cooperation was wanting, which was intelligible in the case of the local police, since it traversed their previous convictions and conclusions, but was inexcusable in the Home Office. The law officers of the Crown upheld their view that there was not a prima facie case, but I fear that consciously or unconsciously the same trade union principle was at work. Let me briefly state the case that the public may judge. I will call the suspect X. I was able to show 1. that X had shown a peculiar knife or horse lancet to someone and had stated that this knife did the crimes. I had this knife in my possession. 2. that this knife or a similar knife must have been used in some of the crimes, as shown by the shallow incision. 3. that X had been trained in the slaughter yard and the cattle ship and was accustomed to brutal treatment of animals. 4. that he had a clear record both of anonymous letters and of destructive propensities. 5. that his writing and that of his brother exactly fitted into the two writings of the anonymous letters. In this I had strong independent evidence. 6. that he had shown signs of periodical insanity and that his household and bedroom was such that he could leave unseen at any hour of the night. There were very many corroborative evidences, but those were the main ones, coupled with the fact that when X was away for some years, the letters and outrages stopped, but began again when he returned. On the other hand, when Adalji was put in prison, the outrages went on, the same as before. It will hardly be believed that after I had laid these facts before the Home Office, they managed to present the House of Commons with the official legal opinion that there was not a prima facie case, while a high official of the government said to me, I see no more evidence against these two brothers than against myself and my brother. The points I mention are taken from the paper I laid before the Law Officers of the Crown, which lies before me as I write, so the facts are exactly as stated. I had one letter in sorrow, and also in anger, from the Staffordshire Police, complaining that I should be libelling this poor young man whose identity could easily be established. I do not know what has become of X, or how often he has been convicted since, but on the last occasion on which I have notes, 
the magistrate said in condemning him to six months' imprisonment with hard labour, his character was extremely bad. He, having been convicted of arson, of stealing on three occasions, and of damage. On his own confession he had committed a deliberate and cruel theft from his aged mother, and it was impossible to overlook the seriousness of the case. So much for the inoffensive youth whom I had libelled. But what about Adalgis three years of jail? On September the 18th, 1907, I married Miss Jean Leckie, the younger daughter of a Blackheath family whom I had known for years and who was a dear friend of my mother and sister. There are some things which one feels too intimately to be able to express, and I can only say that the years have passed without one shadow coming to mar even for a moment the sunshine of my Indian summer, which now deepens to a golden autumn. She and my three younger children, with the kindly sympathy of my two elder ones, have made my home an ideally happy one. My wife's people had a house at Crowborough, and there they had gone to reside. As they were very attached, I thought it would be a happy arrangement not to separate them. So I bought a house close by, named Windlesham. As I paid for it by a sum of money which I recovered, after I had been unjustly defrauded of it, my friends suggested Swindlesham as a more appropriate name. Thus it came about that in 1907 I left Undershaw, Hindhead, after ten years' residence, and moved myself and my belongings to the highlands of Sussex, where I still dwell in the few months of settled life, which give me a rest between my wanderings. Very soon after my marriage, having just got clear of the Adalgi case, I became entangled in that of Oscar Slater. The one was in a way the cause of the other, for since I was generally given credit for having got Adalgi out of his troubles, it was hoped by those who believed that Slater's condemnation was a miscarriage of justice that I might be able to do the same for him. I went into the matter most reluctantly, but when I glanced at the facts, I saw that it was an even worse case than the Adalgi one, and that this unhappy man had in all probability no more to do with the murder for which he had been condemned than I had. I am convinced that when on being convicted he cried out to the judge that he never knew that such a woman as the murdered woman existed, he was speaking the literal truth. In one respect, the Oscar Slater case was not so serious as the Adalgi one, because Slater was not a very desirable member of society. He had never, so far as is known, been in trouble as a criminal. But he was a gambler and adventurer of uncertain morals and dubious ways. A German Jew by extraction, living under an alias. Adalgi, on the other hand, was a blameless youth, but in another aspect, Slater's case was worse than that of Adalgi, since the charge was murder. He was very nearly hanged, and finally the life sentence was actually carried out, so that the wrong was never righted, and at the present moment the unfortunate man is in jail. It is a dreadful blot upon the administration of justice in Scotland, and such judicial crimes are not, I am convinced, done with impunity even to the most humble. Somehow... Somewhere there comes a national punishment in return. The case was roughly this. An elderly woman, Miss Gilchrist, was done to death most brutally in her flat, while her servant-maid, Helen Lambie, was absent for ten minutes on an errand. 
Her head was beaten to pieces by some hard instrument. The neighbours were alarmed by the noise, and one of them, together with the maid, actually saw the murderer, a young man, leave the flat and pass him at the door. The police description at the time was by no means in agreement with Slater's appearance. Robbery did not appear to be the motive of the crime, for nothing was missing, unless it was a single diamond brooch. On the other hand, a box of papers had been broken into and left in disorder. The date was December the 21st, 1908. And now comes the great fact which is admitted by all and which makes the whole case wildly improbable, if not utterly impossible. It was thought that a diamond brooch had been taken. It was found out that a diamond brooch had also been pawned by the bohemian Slater, who had started for America. Was it not clear that he was the murderer? New York was warned. Slater was arrested and in due time was returned to Glasgow. Then came the fiasco. It was found beyond all doubt that the brooch in question had been in Slater's possession for years and that it had nothing to do with Miss Gilchrist at all. This should have been the end of the case. It was too preposterous to suppose that out of all the folk in Glasgow the police had arrested the right man by pure chance, for that was what it amounted to. But the public had lost its head, and so had the police. If the case had completely gone to pieces, surely it could be reconstructed in some fresh form. Slater was poor and friendless. He had lived with a woman which shocked Scotch morality. As one writer boldly said in the press, even if he did not do it, he deserved to be condemned anyhow. A case was made up in the most absurd manner. A half-crown card of tools was found in his box, with the sort of tools which are found on such cards. The frail hammer was evidently the instrument which had beaten in the woman's skull. The handle might have been cleaned. Then surely there had been blood on it. The police description was already amended, so as to be nearer to Slater. He, a sallow, dark-haired Jew, was picked out by witnesses from among a group of fair Scotsmen. Someone had been seen waiting in the street for some nights before. This someone was variously described by many witnesses. Some descriptions would fit Slater, some were his very opposite. The people who saw the murderer leave thought it might be Slater, but were not sure. The chief witness, Adams, was very short-sighted and had not his glasses. A clear alibi was proved by Slater, but as his mistress and his servant girl were the witnesses, it was not allowed. Whom could he produce save the inmates of his house? No attempt was ever made to show that Slater had any connection with Miss Gilchrist or with the maid, Lambie. And as Slater was really a stranger in Glasgow, it was impossible to see how he could have known anything about this retired old maid. But he was not too well defended while Mr. Ure, the Advocate-General of Scotland, prosecuting for the State, thundered away in a most violent speech, in which several statements were made, uncorrected by Judge Guthrie, which were very inexact, and which must have powerfully swayed the jury. Finally the Crown got a conviction by nine votes to six, five not proven, which of course would have meant a new trial in England, and the wretched foreigner was condemned to death. The scaffold was actually erected, and it was only two mornings before his execution that the order came which prevented a judicial murder. As it was, the man became a convict, 
and is one still. It is an atrocious story, and as I read it and realise the wickedness of it all, I was moved to do all I could for the man. I was aided by the opinion of Sir Herbert Stephen, who read the evidence and declared that there was not even a prima facie case against the man. I therefore started a newspaper agitation and wrote a small book with an account of the whole matter. The consciences of some people responded, and finally we got up sufficient pressure to induce the government to appoint a commissioner, Sheriff Miller, to examine the case. It was all to no purpose, and the examination was a farce. The terms of reference were so narrow that the conduct of the police was entirely excluded, which was really the very thing at issue, since we held that where their original evidence failed them, they had strained many points in trying to build up a case and to obtain a verdict. It was also decided that evidence should not be on oath. The result was that there was no result, nor could there be with such limitations. Nonetheless, some fresh evidence was put forward, which further weakened the already very weak case for the prosecution. For example, at the trial it had been stated that Slater, on reaching Liverpool from Glasgow, had gone to a Liverpool hotel under a false name, as if he were trying to throw the police off his track. It was shown that this was not true, and that he had signed the register with his own Glasgow name. I say his Glasgow name, for he had several pseudonyms in the course of his not-too-reputable career. And, as a fact, he took his actual passage under a false name, showing that he intended to make a clear start in America. He was, according to his own account, pursued by some woman, probably his lawful wife, and this covering of tracks was to escape this huntress. The fact that he used his own name at the hotel showed that the new name was for American rather than for British use, and that he had no fear of Glasgow pursuit. We could do no more, and there the matter rested. There was a very ugly aftermath of the case, which consisted of what appeared to be persecution of Mr. Trench, a detective who had given evidence at the inquiry, which told in favour of our view. A charge was shortly afterwards made against both him and the solicitor, Mr. Cook, who had been conspicuous upon Slater's side, which might well have ruined them both. As it was, it caused them great anxiety and expense. There had been a most unpleasant political flavour to the whole proceedings, but on this occasion the case came before a Conservative judge, Mr. Scott Dixon, who declared that it should never have been brought into court and dismissed it forthwith with contempt. It is a curious circumstance that, as I write, in 1924, Judge Guthrie, Cook, Trench, Helen Lambie, Miller and others have all passed on, but Slater still remains, eating out his heart at Peterhead. One strange psychic fact should be mentioned, which was brought to my notice by an eminent English K.C. There was a spiritualist circle which used to meet at Falkirk, and shortly after the trial, messages were received by it which purported to come from the murdered woman. She was asked what the weapon was which had slain her. She answered that it was an iron box opener. Now I had pondered over the nature of certain wounds in the woman's face, which consisted of two cuts with a little bridge of unbroken skin between. They might have been caused by the claw end of a hammer, but on the other hand, one of the woman's eyes had been pushed back into her brain, which could hardly have been done by a hammer, 
which would have burst the eyeball first. I could think of no instrument which would meet the case, but the box opener would exactly do so, for it has a forked end which would make the double wound, and it is also straight so that it might very well penetrate to the brain, driving the eye in front of it. The reader will reasonably ask why did not the spiritualists ask the name of the criminal? I believe that they did, and received a reply, but I do not think that such evidence could or should ever be used or published. It could only be useful as the starting point of an inquiry. There was one intervention during those years to which I look back with satisfaction, and that was my protest against the King's Oath before the coronation of King Edward. The oath was actually changed, and though my protest may have had no effect upon that historic fact, it was, nonetheless, the first letter in the Times upon the subject. It ran thus, Sir, surely Colonel Sandys and the members of the Protestant Reformation Society should, looking at the matter simply from their own point of view, recognise that the surest way to strengthen any creed is, as the whole history of the world has proved, to persecute it. And it is mere juggling with words to attempt to show that it is anything other than persecution to hold up the Roman Catholic faith to obloquy in the coronation oath, while every other creed, Christian or non-Christian, is left unassailed. Is it not a shocking thing that while Roman Catholic chapels throughout the whole empire are still draped in black for a deceased monarch, his successor should be compelled by law to insult the most intimate convictions of these same mourners? And is it not a most narrow and foolish policy, unworthy of this tolerant age, that a young king should be forced to offend the feelings of great numbers of Irishmen, Canadians and other subjects? I feel sure that apart from Catholics, the great majority of broad-minded thinkers of any or of no denomination in this country are of opinion that the outcry of fanatics should be disregarded and that all creeds should receive the same courteous and respectful treatment so long as their adherents are members of the common empire. To bring these medieval rancours to an end would indeed be an auspicious opening of a new reign. Yours faithfully, Arthur Conan Doyle End of chapter 21